Francis's favourite passage. This is my most used passage. Um, maybe John 10 would come as my favourite one, and we had that last week. I guess it's my most used one because this is a passage that's used in a plethora of ways. We use it theologically to say there's only one way to God because in this passage as he's talking to his disciples, Jesus says, um, no one comes to the Father except through me. So this passage has been used as a, uh, an interfaith debating passage or that verse has been taken in that direction. We use it evangelistically. <clears throat> I am the way and the truth and the life. And I have done sermons and those have been my three points. And I've done coffee bars in the past where those were different days of my week. So we've used it evangelistically. And we use it pastorally, which is what um, Francis was hinting at in the title, Jesus Comforts His Disciples. So I would use it now, probably at every funeral I would do. And I think it's right to do that. But sometimes I think that it's probably there for us to do funerals because the Northern Ireland way has been, let's use a funeral to have a go at somebody in an evangelistic way. So we do the do not let your hearts be troubled things so that we can get to I am the way, the truth, and the life and there's no other way to the Father except through me so that we can have a good preach at people at a time actually when they would need more comfort than evangelism or theology. So it's well used. And so when you come to a well used passage it can be so familiar that it's very hard to get a a kind of a um, traction to see where you're going to go with the sermon. But a few things have come to me this week, and I want to end with one that might be over the lectionary readings, but I don't think I'm stretching it or contriving it too far to bring it home, and we've already touched on it in the service already. But let me say a few things that struck me as I came to John 14. The first one was it's a bizarre lectionary reading for the weeks after Pentecost, or the weeks, sorry, leading up to Pentecost after the resurrection. So the way we're doing <coughs> lectionary is that we have Jesus' resurrection and then we have these readings that are post-resurrection sermons that lead us into uh, Pentecost and the Ascension. Or the Ascension and Pentecost to get the right order in, in that one. And this is a bizarre one because this takes us back to John chapter 14, which is the goodbye time that Jesus is saying goodbye to his disciples. But we're in the post-resurrection where he's back with them again. So first of all, it was a little bit of a bizarre one to go to, but I don't think as we look at through it that, that it's as bizarre as all that. The second one is, for the first time it struck me that this is Jesus' goodbye talk to the disciples, and even though he will have time with them after the resurrection, this is his goodbye before his death, and actually what this is, this is goodbye to the incarnation. This is goodbye to the incarnation. You know me, I've got my bingo cards. So every Sunday you're sitting there with your bingo cards and you're saying, when's he going to say it? At some stage of the service he's going to say, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. Tick, ten, ten. Then you might have noticed that quite often I'll go to later on in John where I go to, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And it can happen on communion Sundays as we finish communion. There's another bingo tick for a Stockman sermon. You're the light of the world paraphrased as your particles of light across the city. There's another bingo card tick in Stockman sermons. 
What frightens me is that the people that are smiling have only been here for a few months and even you pick up these verses on and on and on. The kingdom coming and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've used it already again today. There's something that's a bingo card Stockman saying. And one of the others and maybe one of the most is the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. John chapter one, I love it. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The incarnation, that whole thing that I do at Advent where I say that this is as important a time in our reflections as Lent is, as the cross is, as the resurrection is, because in this moment, the word became flesh, incarnation. It's one of my grow words or phrases to use the Irish kind of passionate word for love. I love the word becoming flesh. Incarnational ministry. God flesh on in the neighborhood around about us. Jesus on the doorsteps of our communities here in Belfast and across the world. Donegal Pass that we're still engaging with the community there, trying to work out what it might mean if Jesus incarnated and moved into the neighborhood of Donegal Pass. I am Mr. Incarnation. And yet right here, Jesus is saying that the incarnation is over. God becoming flesh and moving into our neighborhood is coming to an end. And he's preparing them for death. And yes, I think in this five chapter pastoral retreat for resurrection, for ascension, And for Pentecost, when the incarnation goes on, but through us, you will do even greater things in the incarnation of the church moving into the neighborhood than the incarnation did in his 33 years on earth and three years as ministry. But it was an interesting thing for me to deal with the fact that this is the incarnation in that part of it, over. And then what really struck me, and Francis has hinted at it, is the incredible pastoral nature of this passage. This is Jesus at his most tender and intimate and compassionate. This is Jesus with those that he is closest to, who have been with him on a journey, And he's watching them and he's saying, boy, they're not ready yet. My goodness, we have work to do on them. They're confused. But I really love these guys. And I want to prepare them for what's about to happen. And so pastorally, do not let your hearts be troubled. Just after he's warned Peter, you're going to deny me. And that in itself was not a harsh judgmental thing in Peter as much as it was saying, Peter, I'm going to have to explain to you one of the foibles and quirks that you have is you're a bit rash. And I will tell you here that before the cock crows, you're going to deny me. That's just part of it. The moment who you are. And Peter must have been going, oh my goodness, what's going on? We've washed the disciples' feet. Jesus has been talking about breaking bread with one of them that's going to betray him. They're all in a bit of a state of chassis, to quote the Irish literature. And in this state of chastis, he says, but pastorally, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. 
This is Jesus the pastor. The emotions in this passage are palpable. But this is, in some ways, goodbye. But it's goodbye with a preparation for what's to come. Jesus is getting the disciples ready for death, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. Goodbyes that prepare us. I couldn't get away from thinking about Mo Blake this week as I was thinking about goodbyes that prepare us. For those who are new to Fitzroy or those who are visitors, Mo was one of our congregation that passed away a number of years ago. And she prepared us all. And um, Janice and I went to do the pastoral visit. It was coming near the summertime. We knew that Mo wasn't in good health. We hoped that she would be there after we came back from the summer, but we weren't sure. And so let's take Mo out for lunch. Went to Cafe Renoir. And then we went to minister to Mo. And we came out about an hour and a half later and we got to the lights and we went, how did she do that? Because we spent an hour and a half being ministered to. She got us ready. She gave us verses and she gave us advice that when you lot were giving us a hard time, the minister and the minister's wife might make it through and that we should make it through. And these were the reasons we should make it through. Because we were right for here and we were going to be here and we were going to do things here. And here are the verses, Steve, and here's why, Steve. And we went out going, why did we not get a chance to minister to Mo? Because she was saying goodbye because she wanted to have an impact long after the goodbye. And so a few days before she passed away, we're in the house and we're talking about the party of heaven. And we knew Mo was pretty close to that party. And so we said, so the party's coming. And she stopped us in the party mood of that. And she said, the party's coming for me. But you're not coming to it yet. And she was preparing us for loss and goodbye. This is Jesus preparing his disciples for loss and goodbye. It is an evangelistic passage. It is a theological passage. But those things came later. It wasn't what was happening in the moment. Jesus wasn't saying, I tell you what I need to do in this five-day thing or this five-chapter thing that I'm going to do. I need to actually sit down and make sure that I have a good, uh, a good sound passage for inter-church or interfaith stuff later on in history. Or I need to give those preachers in Northern Ireland in the 20th century a really good verse that they can preach on endlessly on. And I'll fit it into this past. He was just thinking at that moment about the pastoral care of his disciples. And it's been happening, as I said, for five chapters. Chapter 13, he washes the disciples' feet and he tells them who they need to be. I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Preparing them to be those who would serve like he washes their feet so they would serve. Chapter 14, he promises them the Holy Spirit after this 
these moments that Francis read for us earlier, he tells them, if you love me and keep my, you will keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. He's talking about the Holy Spirit coming. That passage that, that Francis read at the start of chapter 14, we find that the Father is in me and I am in the Father and the Father will be in you. And Pentecost is that moment when the Father is poured out, when Father, Son and Holy Spirit are poured out into the church. That's us so that we will continue to do even greater things than Jesus himself was doing, which was in that passage we read. Chapter 15 then, he explains to them, you need to be in the vine. Your identity is in the vine, and if you're going to be on the vine with me and the Father, then you will, then things will happen. I am the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I and you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you will do nothing. Chapter 16, he goes back into the work of the Holy Spirit. Are you asking each other, he says, what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices and you will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. He's explaining them that after death that they're about to see in the next moments because chapter 18 starts with the soldiers coming for him. This is right at the crux of the goodbye. This is right at the crux of crucifixion. This is right at the crux of this violent end to the one that they think is Savior and that they love. And he's saying, the world will rejoice in this and you will grieve. But in a while, a little while, you will have your grief turned to joy. Chapter 17, and we get all those prayers for the disciples and for us, etc., etc., etc. And Jesus is saying, this work of mine will continue through you. Whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So we're back in chapter 14 for the goodbye so that now in resurrection time we're beginning to understand what he was saying before that would impact the afterwards. The goodbye had something happening afterwards that would change everything. And so I want to end and bring us to this table by bringing something into play here that was in that other reading that I read at the start of the service from Peter. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Now for a moment, just put yourself back in that retreat that Jesus is having with his disciples. He washes their feet. They break bread just as we're about to do now. And Jesus is chatting to them and Peter's going for it. And he's saying, Peter, you need to understand here that you're going to deny me. Oh, I'm going to deny him. What is the way? Where is the way? Where are you going? We don't know. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he says. Do not let your hearts be troubled because you know the way, because I am the way. And you've been following the way all along. And you do know the Father because you know me. And then you just imagine, just imagine it didn't happen, just contrive it. Just imagine that Jesus at that moment says to them, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were tax collectors and once you were fishermen and once you were going in your own sweet way, but you met mercy. Once you were in darkness, but now you're in light. And here you are gathered around the Messiah at this table after I've washed your feet. And what I'm saying to you is this. This changes your identity. 
This changes who you are. In this goodbye, I want you to know that after I've left here, that you are somebody because your identity is now in the way and the truth and the life. So this week, just occasionally identity came up and I thought it might be throwing me towards the conclusion. The gates of Oriolaku, I do think, I think of Rachel and Jacqueline, our sponsored kids, and I think of them walking in that gate or out that gate and what it must do to them when they walk in that gate or out that gate. Their identity changes because of the school they go to. And look at the school I go to. I don't go to a hovel of a school. I don't go to a school that has no blackboard. I don't go to a school that's for the poor of the poor on the edge of the earth and it's doing nothing. I go to a school where people thought about us in a faraway place. And they didn't only think about us in a faraway place, but they tithed, they tithed their buildings and they built us a school. Look at our school. It still looks new. I've got a chair to sit on. I have a desk to be on. Christmas time, they bought us textbooks. I have a textbook. I have a textbook. And then they said, and then these two crazy guys got onto bikes and I told them last summer about these guys. I told them when we were under the tree and on Elaku last summer about Richard and Michael and these bikes and how they cycled in these bikes and they cycled in these bikes so that I would walk through this gate. I'm not a nobody. Maybe after all, I'm a somebody. Maybe my identity is different because I am loved. People have thought of me. And then I was talking to John McMullen about tonight and I can't, I can't, sell tonight too much. You will love tonight. John has a lot to say and wonderful ways to say it. But he was telling me when he was thinking of the child soldiers, and I never thought about this before, he said one of the psychological things, because child psychology is his thing, child psychology with trauma, children of child soldiers is his thing, and he said, it's their identity. One minute their identity is in this village with their families, And then they're taken out of their village and their identity becomes eight, nine, and 10 years of age. They become child soldiers. They become part of an army. That becomes their identity. And then the war ends or they escape or they're freed and they have to come back to the village and they don't know what their identity is because they have been by the age of 10 or 11 or 12, either innocent children in the village or child murderers of people maybe in their village. And that child psychology, the battle that child psychologists have is to make sure they find out who their identity is. And then third and the bizarrest of all, I'm sitting minding my own business for 10 minutes in the house and I've never ever watched it, but in the corner of the screen for the last 10 minutes of it, not the whole program, were Tales of the Unexpected. Have you ever watched that crazy thing? It's 70s and it's terrible, but I get sucked in for the last 10 minutes. And the very last lines in it were these. This guy has a gun. There's a murderer on the loose. There's a serial killer on the loose. And this guy's not the serial killer, though you think he is the serial killer. But he's pretending to be the serial killer because it gives him identity. And he's scaring up all these people. And he's scaring this little nerdy guy in a car that I think looked as if he was going to his psychology seminar somewhere. And he's really frightening him. And he says to him, he says, you know who you are with a gun in your hand. You are a somebody. You know who you are with a gun in your hand. You are a somebody. And I thought again about identity. This guy wants to be somebody. He needs an identity. So in his identity saying, if I have a gun in my hand, I've got an identity. I am a somebody. 
And then in the tale of the unexpected, the nerdy guys, the serial killer. And it all ends rather differently than you expect. But here's my conclusion. Here's my conclusion. In John 14, as Jesus pastors his disciples, as he says goodbye, he gives them their sense of identity. And here's my paraphrase. Here's my paraphrase. You know who you are with a piece of bread in your hand. You are somebody. Chosen people. Holy nation. God's possessions. Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Because when you walk through the doors of this church this morning, like Jacqueline and Rachel will walk through the gates of Onelaku on the 22nd of May, as you walk through the doors, you have an identity. As you come now to this bread and this wine, you have an identity that is far superior to anybody with a gun. And that's the pastoral care. Whatever it is that is looming in your dread, this piece of bread, whatever it is that you're going through, and it might be a goodbye, this piece of bread, the way, the truth, the life, Jesus, the way to the Father, the Father in me, and me and you, and as the Father sends Jesus, so Jesus sends his chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, God's possession. Leave back through the doors of this church, having taken this bread and wine, knowing who you are. Bingo card maybe, but not used for a while. Queen Elizabeth II, when she was just a princess, lost outside Balmoral Castle with no social media or any media or TV at all, and a woman finds her and doesn't know who she is. Brings her in and says, who are you so as I can get you back to your parents? And she says, oh, I'm a nobody. But my father's the king. None of us are nobodies. Because this piece of bread, this little drop of wine, tells us exactly who we are. That changes everything. Let's pray together. Lord, it's more than possible that many of us have reasons for our hearts to be troubled today. And yet you come to us as a tender, compassionate pastor to minister into our lives with bread and wine, to give us our sense of identity that makes us different, maybe more able, maybe just enough strength to get through this next week. So Lord, we seek that your spirit would come We seek that we would do even greater things than you have done. 
We seek that the incarnation that Jesus was talking about saying goodbye to will be changed and transformed into those who take bread and take wine and remember you until you come. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.